This is Nutshell Politics, a show where we discuss what you need to know about current events, international relations, political conflict, and my favorite topic of discussion, terrorism. The mainstream media isn't always the best at reporting on international events. They often lack depth, context, and understanding, a problem unfortunately driven by ratings. But here, on Nutshell Politics, I seek to fill those gaps, and most importantly, to make sure you know what's actually going on out there. So let's dive in. Hey all, welcome back to a brand new episode of Nutshell Politics. My name is Dr. Justin Kinney, and I am really happy to be with you guys again, uh, talking about what I hope will be a, a fascinating topic. I think this will be a really interesting episode, especially if you're at all interested in Middle Eastern politics or nuclear politics and nuclear policy. But before I get too far into that, I want to just take a step back and just say thank you uh, to all my listeners. As many of you are probably aware, uh, Spotify just recently released what they call Spotify Unwrapped, which is where people can kind of see what their trends and listening were over the last year for music and podcasts and all kinds of things. But what I think a lot of people don't realize, the average person, is that podcasters actually get some of this information as well. So just to see who's listening to their podcast and, and that sort of thing. And honestly, I was kind of blown away by it. I know this year has been kind of a tougher year for me with the podcast, not as many episodes by far as I did last year. But even still, I saw you know 37 different countries, I believe it was, have listened to the podcast in the last year. My listenership grew by 36%, uh, which is amazing for a, kind of a down year in terms of total number of episodes. And honestly, I was, I was just thrilled and just blown away by all of that. And so I want to just say thank you to all of you who have listened in the last year. Uh, please continue to listen as I, I keep doing these. I know it's not as regular as it used to be, but I do still really enjoy doing them when I get the chance. And hopefully we can continue to grow this. Uh, so tell your friends, spread it around. Uh, I really appreciate that. And again, thank you so much. All right, so let's let's go ahead and jump into this week's topic. We're going to be talking about an assassination that took place in the country of Iran in the Middle East. And we're going to talk about who was assassinated, who this guy really was, uh, why he may have been assassinated, how it all happened, how it went down. Uh, maybe who was behind it, we can speculate on that, although I will warn you there has been nobody who has taken responsibility for it yet, so we're still just speculating. Uh, and kind of what that means going forward and what, what Iran might do in retaliation as well. So we're going to spend the episode talking about all, all of this, uh, so let's just go ahead and dive right in. All right, so last Friday, I believe it was, there was an Iranian scientist, a uh, nuclear scientist, who was assassinated in a town uh, just kind of east of Tehran, which is the capital of Iran. Uh, he was shot by a remote-controlled machine gun as his car was driving down the road. And there are some, uh, let me just start by saying, there's, there's some conflicting accounts from different news agencies about exactly how this went down. There was one report that said something to the effect of he was traveling within a bulletproof car. There were some weird noises, sounded like maybe even bullets hitting the vehicle. He got out of his car to figure out what happened, and that's when the, this remote-controlled machine gun opened fire. Other reports reference the idea of a possible explosion, other gunfire, different orders, you know, explosion first, then gunfire, gunfire, explosion, more gunfire. But the basic idea here is that one, one of their top nuclear scientists uh, was, was assassinated. Now, uh, his name is Mohsen Fakhrizadeh. 
Uh, he was the chief nuclear scientist for probably about two decades, helping run Iran's nuclear weapons program. Uh, and the, the rumors are that he actually continued working on it even after the formal program was disbanded in the early 2000s as well. So let's talk about this. Um, okay, so let's start by saying who was Fakhrizadeh. Mohsen Fakhrizadeh was originally, he was a, a brigadier general in the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. The Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC, is basically a branch of the Iranian Armed Forces, part of their military. And in particular, this this group is intended to kind of protect their political system. So, and which, which would include the, the religious Islamic system alongside the more secular political system. I, we've actually talked a little bit about the Iranian politics on this podcast briefly, but really interesting. One of, actually probably one of the most unique systems in the world because they actually have kind of two leaders they have their secular president, but then they also have their religious leader, uh, and they both kind of co-govern with the religious leader, the, the Ayatollah uh, Khomeini, as the supreme leader, while their president is a man by the name of uh, Hassan Rouhani. So the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps protects both the political system, but also the Islamic religious political system. And Fakhrizadeh was a brigadier general in the, uh, in the IRGC. Uh, he was also an academic physicist at one point and eventually ended up as a, a pretty high senior official in the nuclear program of Iran. So he was in the neighborhood of 60 to 62 years old, not 100% sure of his exact birthday, but he joined the IRGC after the Iranian Revolution of 1979. Now, we've actually talked about the Iranian Revolution of 79 on this podcast before. It's a pretty big deal. If you... If you ever want to understand Middle Eastern politics in general, this revolution in 79 was um, a, a major turning point for a lot of different things and really worth understanding and, and studying. So he joined the IRGC in, just after the revolution of 79. He later went on to, to the university, uh, got, got a PhD actually. He was a physics professor and he kind of worked his way up and actually ended up leading some of the organizations in national defense, um, the Organization of Defensive Innovation and Research. Uh, he was involved with that. It's a government-funded organization for research. He was involved and in, actually led the Green Salt Project, which is uh, kind of a secretive group in Iran that focused mainly on uh, processing uranium and other types of explosives. But because he kind of got involved with these nuclear research programs pretty early on, both the United Nations and the United States had his assets frozen in the early 2000s. And so he's had a pretty long, uh, prestigious career within the Iranian academic and research front, especially on nuclear weapons. Now, he has done some other things as well. Uh, actually, just recently, he was helping develop COVID-19 testing kits uh, for Iran. So he, he's ha had kind of a pretty lengthy and impressive career in nuclear politics in Iran. Because he was so high up in the Iranian government uh, and the Iranian nuclear program, he ha he did have his own uh, personal security detail. He lived in a compound that was considered uh, very secure. He'd actually, um, there's reports that he had been a, the target of an assassination years ago. But by and large, he actually worked and operated pretty much behind the scenes. He had a very low profile publicly. Even within Iran, the average Iranian citizen probably had no idea who he was. Uh, he was rarely mentioned in their media. It, whenever he was, he was always just talked about as a university professor. 
So it was pretty unlikely that even the average citizen in Iran knew who he was. The only reason that he kind of had made the news more more recently is because he had popped up on a few Iranian websites alongside uh, Ayatollah Khomeini. Now, behind the scenes, in terms of like the military intelligence communities around the world, uh, his his knowledge, or sorry, his uh, involvement was much more well known. Uh, Israel, in particular, has previously singled him out. Uh, as the head of some of the, the nuclear programs in, in Iran. So he, he's been known behind the scenes uh, for his scientific research for quite a while. But publicly, most people didn't know who he was, especially, I mean, especially in the West, but even within the country of Iran, most people probably had never heard his name or knew anything about him beyond potentially seeing him as a university professor. So on November 27th, he was driving in his car or being driven in his car when he hit this ambush. Uh, It was a town called Absard, A-B-S-A-R-D, which is, again, east of Tehran. A lot of different conflicting narratives of what happened. But essentially, uh, he was gunned down and killed in an attack that killed about three or four people in total, potentially bodyguards, uh, and others were wounded too. So there have been reports of a lot of different other things. One, per, one report claimed there was a suicide attacker. Others claimed explosives. Uh, so the specifics of the assassination are minimal. Now, after the incident, uh, Iranian security forces began trying to stop vehicles all around Tehran, trying to find the culprits. Nobody to this point has claimed responsibility. No individual, no group, no country. Uh, so nobody really knows. Um, but this is something that Iran is taking very seriously, obviously, uh, not only because he's a, a fairly top level person, although they claim he left behind nuclear politic or nuclear weapons years ago when they agreed to stop their nuclear weapons program. Not many people actually believe that, but uh, Iran does claim that he wasn't doing that now. They saw him more as a civilian, at least publicly. They, that's what they say. But this is actually a pretty big deal for Iran for a couple different reasons, primarily because this is probably the largest failure for Iranian security and Iranian intelligence in a long, long time. And so they're very upset, concerned about how this happened. So in the the wake of the assassination, uh, Iran has a kind of a national security council, more or less equivalent to the, the NSC that the United States has and other countries, something very similar. And they basically convened an emergency meeting. A lot of their senior military commanders came together, including the chief commander of that IRGC, whose group would theoretically be responsible for protecting people like Fakhrizadeh and others in the political structure. And Iran has been very busy calling for revenge and punishment against who they claim the perpetrators of the assassination were. Now, they have publicly referred to Fakhrizadeh as a martyr. Uh, they talk about him as a national hero. And they have publicly alleged that the country of Israel is involved. Now, we're going to talk about that in a minute and kind of whether or not they were involved or not. Again, we don't, we don't know for sure, so it's all speculation. But we'll talk about that in a minute. But publicly, they are, they are accusing Israel of it. However, on the international stage... Other countries have been strangely quiet. Uh, The foreign ministers of a handful of countries in the Middle East, Qatar, Turkey, the UAE, Iraq, came out and condemned the killing. Uh, Even here in the United States, uh, there was a former CIA director uh, named John Brennan. You guys have probably heard that name. 
Uh, he called the the attack criminal act and highly reckless. Very interesting coming from a former CIA director. But beyond those, there have been very few comments. Uh, Israel has refused to make a comment on it. The United States has not made an official statement on the killing. The UN Security Council has not even released a statement yet as of the recording of this podcast. Obviously, they might release one going forward, but you've had a handful of like foreign ministries like Germany that basically said, you know, avoid any escalation here. But by and large, the international community has not said a whole lot about this. And that that is curious, uh, probably because there's a lot of questions regarding what exactly happened. But within Iran, you have all kinds of leaders speaking out about this. There was a public lawmaking session where legislators chanted things like death to America, death to Israel. They went over a bill trying to block inspections by the IAEA, which is the International Atomic Energy Agency. The IAEA is who's responsible for making uh, sure countries are following the nuclear weapons rules. So they're trying to now block inspections. And President Rouhani, who is the the more secular of the two leaders in, in Iran, said, the think tanks and the enemies of Iran must know that the Iranian nation and the officials in charge in the country are brave and determined to respond to this murder in time. And Ayatollah Khomeini said something to the effect of, uh, there are two matters that people in charge should put on, on their to-do list. One, to follow up the atrocity and retaliate against those responsible for it. And two, to follow up martyr, again, notice the word martyr there, uh, Fakhrizadeh's scientific and technical uh, technical activities in all fields in which he was active. This is uh, really interesting on a couple fronts. Uh, obviously, the first front is the retaliation against those responsible for it, uh, especially since nobody has claimed responsibility. This is kind of up in the air. We don't know what evidence Iran has for their claims against Israel, other than the fact that Israel and Iran don't get along. Uh, and I would add, Israel has been known to carry out different types of assassinations, although this would be probably the highest profile one in quite a while. And I would add to their rare... Israeli assassinations, Israeli uh, intelligence and spies and all these sorts of things, they're a very secretive organization. This would be unnaturally sloppy for them to have kind of a gunfire, battle, explosions, whatever, suicide bomber, potentially, like within the country of Iran. There's just a lot of weirdness there that would be un unnaturally sloppy for Israel if this was them. Uh, it might be. Uh, again, we again no, nobody really knows who carried it out. There are a lot of countries that do not like Iran, including Saudi Arabia, who could potentially have had a hand in this, and probably a dozen other countries in the Middle East who are not fans of Iran right now. And actually, this this ties into a little bit of a topic we talked about on here. I don't know, it's been a little while back, at least a few episodes back, I think, where we discussed the recent peace deals between Middle Eastern or Arab countries and Israel. And one of the things I mentioned at the time is the reason, or part of the reason these deals have been going through recently is because a lot of countries in the Middle East now see Iran as a bigger threat to peace and stability than they saw Israel. And so they're starting to realize Israel may be more of an ally, whereas Iran may be, may be more of a threat. So there are a lot of countries that are very, very concerned with Iran as, as a potential threat to the region. So it's, I should say, the, the list of possible suspects in this is quite long. I said their biggest rival is probably Saudi Arabia, but also obviously Israel is a big is a big rival, and there are probably a dozen other countries that may have incentive to 
want to cripple Iran's nuclear programs and and just just in general to try to hurt their political structure because they see them as a, as a pretty major threat to the area. And in fact, too, like there are obviously Western countries who are very concerned about Iran as well. And this assassination is going to raise tensions in the region and tensions in the relationships that Western countries have with Iran. Uh, for instance, here in the United States, we just had a presidential election. And by most accounts, it looks like Joe Biden will be taking over in January. And if, if he tries to form some sort of relationship with Iran, it's going to complicate things. Just a couple of weeks before the assassination, Trump was actually, apparently, I mean, this is just reports, you know, we don't know. Uh, he was talking about striking at some of Iran's nuclear facilities, and then he backed off, or he was talked out of it or something. There's Again, there's conflicting reports on this. But this killing does have the potential to complicate the incoming relationship of Biden whenever he takes office in January, because Biden has formally, well, I should say formally, he has uh, announced his intention to rejoin the Iranian nuclear deal, which was um, a deal that was put into place under Obama that, well, that's a topic for another day. Um, the Iranian nuclear deal was uh, complicated and, in my opinion, was not exactly a, a great deal to enter for a variety of reasons. But beside the point, um, Biden has said he wants to rejoin that, which is something Trump had backed out of. And there's some questions as to what this might do to that that intention. Um, now, I'm not sure what Iran would stand to gain by trying to turn a cold shoulder to Biden unless they think that all American presidents are the same, which they might. Uh, a lot of times, you know, that, that is the case. Uh, I've talked about this on the podcast as well. It's a re recurring theme. But when it comes to foreign policy, American presidents deviate very little president to president, especially when when compared to like domestic issues. Uh, Trump actually probably had some of the more unusual ones. So there is some some chance for a bit of a swing. But by and large, American presidents don't waver a whole lot. or don't vacillate a whole lot on foreign policy. But we have actually seen Americans respond to this, I should say American uh, policy at the, like, at the high levels, the Pentagon and stuff respond to the killing with uh, the USS Nimitz, which is a ship that they returned to the area around Iran that had, had left. Now it's back there. Um, the U.S. has pulled several of its staffers from the Baghdad embassy that we had in Iraq. But it will be really interesting to kind of see what this does to the ongoing relationship between the U.S. and Iran. Whether or not U.S. was behind it, and the thought is we probably weren't, um, although... You know, again, the U.S. does not exactly have a, a wonderful relationship with Iran, and there's a lot of concern there. Uh, it would be unusual if this was our our method, uh, particularly because we have the assassinations that we have gotten involved with, going back through like the drone program under Obama, were mostly drone strikes. You know, setting up a, a remote-controlled burst of gunfire from a car on a random strip of road outside Tehran would just be unusual when we could just you know, have a drone strike if that's what we really wanted to do. And we have shown that we're willing to do drone strikes. Again, Obama in particular went went nuts with this. Drone striking civilians at times, drone striking American citizens at times, uh, weddings. I mean, just getting way off, way off topic here. But U.S. more has a history when it comes to political assassinations like this. For instance, like we did with uh, Soleimani, uh, which was another political assassination of an Iranian official. 
this would just be a, an unusual style of attack and kind of a sloppy one if the U.S. was involved. That said, and this is kind of where I was going with this, if it was somebody like Israel, you know, Israel and America are some of the closest allies in the world. We've long shared in intelligence and various reports about Iran between the two countries. So there was at least a chance, again, hypothetically, if Israel was behind this, and we don't know that, the United States may have known about this in advance. And that would raise some questions of potential relationships going forward uh, between the United States, uh, which would be Trump for the last month and a half or so, his presidency leading into uh, Joe Biden. That said, uh, following the assassination, um, there were protests all over Te Tehran, particularly outside several government buildings, in which images of Trump were burned, but also images of Biden were burned. Uh, some of the protesters were calling for war. So a, a change in president may not exactly ease the situation here. Although, again, like the relationship that the U.S. has had with Iran has been fraught with tension for quite some time. All right, we're going to stop and take a quick commercial break, and I'll be back with you guys on the other side. Uh, so stay with me for about a minute, and I will talk to you guys soon. All right, welcome back. Thanks for hanging with me through that really quick commercial. Uh, let's go ahead and just jump back in. So Fakriza Day, get back to a little bit of talking about who he was, because as I said, he was very well known for his involvement in Iran's nuclear program. But as I mentioned, Iranian media had frequently downplayed his importance. He was frequently referred to just as a university professor. If he ever got mentioned in anything else, he was considered like a scientist or just a researcher. He was very, very minimal. And I will add too, like Iran's nuclear program has developed long past the point where it's dependent on any one, one person. Uh, there, there was a point in history where he was probably the guy. Whether or not he was now is iffy. Um, but the the motive for this is is fascinating because if he is no longer like the guy when it comes to the nuclear program, and again their program is is long past you know being dependent on a single person, that would actually imply that this may not have been about the nuclear program at least primarily. If the thought was to try to cripple the nuclear program, killing him at this point doesn't do a whole lot. So motive becomes kind of an interesting question here. One thought, and I'm just going to throw this out here. I don't, I don't really buy into this one, but one thought is that it was done to jeopardize uh, the U.S.-Iranian relationship so that uh, Biden can't get his Iran nuclear deal rejoined, passed again. I, I don't really see that as a, as a great motive here, especially for something, because I mean, this is a, an assassination attempt that had to have been planned for a long time to get past, you know, Iran's security forces. So to throw this together in, in less than a month, since the presidential election, and really only a few weeks since most media agencies called it, uh, that would be unusual. But it, it has been you know bandied about. People have talked about that as a possibility of and that wouldn't actually necessarily be a United States thing. That you know, there are a lot of countries who were not thrilled with the nuclear deal that was put forward by the United States and, and Iran at the time. And so, if people were concerned that the U.S. might rejoin that deal, jeopardizing that by an assassination shortly before Biden takes office, could be a lot of different countries. Uh, again, seems iffy because Biden was only just recently named the the winner in the election by most media agencies so 
more likely this is probably about encouraging Iran to engage in a retaliatory act. This would be my my kind of this is my first thought on this and obviously there it doesn't quite line up perfectly. There's probably some more complications with this. It's things like this are very complex. But Iran is seen as a, a threat in the Middle East and there are a lot of countries who are probably looking for ways to convince the outside world, but again, there, there are other Arab uh, neighbors of the threat that is Iran. And if they can in, uh, incite a major retaliatory act, you know, that would provide incentive for a lot of different countries to go to war with Iran and to to take out potentially their, their political leaders and their military leaders. And there would be some incentive for a lot of countries in the Middle East to do this as well. And again, I'm not casting any blame here, but I do think countries like Saudi Arabia have massive incentive for things like that. Uh, They're powerful enough to withstand a retaliatory attack, to uh, let the attack happen, but minimize casualties or potentially even stop the attack in progress, but still then use that as a pitch to the people, not only of their country, but of other countries nearby of the threat that Iran truly poses. So there's a lot of countries here that are looking at Iran and worried about the kind of changing tide of politics in the Middle East, uh, especially actually when you look at the the nuclear, or sorry, the the recent peace deals with with Israel, the politics of the Middle East is, is rapidly changing. And Iran has been one of the biggest critics of these peace deals. And so there is some thought that countries might might look at this and be worried about an Iranian, attack. So trying to get that moving, spark something, a retaliation, that's not out of their own possibility. Um, again, we, we don't know any of this. It's pure speculation on my part. But I would say I'm not the only one who has speculated on either of those motives, um, much less the motive about his nuclear uh, program in, uh, involvement too. So there are some very intelligent people out there who work in these fields saying similar things. But again, Pure speculation. Don't jump too hard down any one of those paths until we know more details. I think one thing that also has kind of gone overlooked in this is that the assassination happened on the heels of a reportedly secret meeting between uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, who is the Israeli prime minister, and Mohammed bin Salman, uh, who is the Saudi crown prince. Apparently that took place about a week before this. And the fact that the assassination happened kind of on the heels of two of Iran's biggest enemies in the region apparently meeting, the Saudi foreign minister denies it, but most people believe that this, this meeting did, did take place. It would be a very interesting coincidence that these two things happened so close to each other, almost strategic in a sense. And while I have zero uh, proof of anything, I, I just find that... Uh, juxtaposition of a high-profile meeting of, of not a high-profile, a very low-profile but high-importance meeting between Iran's two biggest enemies in their region and an assassination happening less than a week later of one of their top uh, scientists. That's just really interesting to me. Uh, again, not casting any blame or anything, just pointing out uh, some fascinating coincidences. Now, as I said, Iran formally blames Israel. Uh, they have mentioned this several times. Calling him a martyr, too, is is a, a term that they use primarily when they when they think something re- religious is at play in one of these attacks. 
So blaming another a country with, with a different religion like Israel uh, would kind of line up with a lot of that. Uh, some of their military advisors tweeted things like uh, about the Zionists trying to uh, create war. They call it state terror. So from a like a formal perspective, Iran is blaming who they call it, the the Zionist regime, which, which is Israel. So where do we go from here then? Uh, because you have a situation where Iran had a seriously, I don't say kind of embarrassing. Uh, intelligence failure, security failure with one of their top scientists who had, by all reports, a pretty major hand in their nuclear program of Iran. When you have something that high profile happen and the rest of the world, there, there's a lot of speculation and zero real, at least hard evidence that we know about as to who may have done it. There, there's a lot of questions and I don't just mean like questions about who did it, but like questions about what, what are... What are Iran's options at this point going forward? Think, imagine if, if the U.S. had one of our top scientists killed. There would be some sort of retaliation, right? I mean, every country would do this, some sort of response at least. So the question is how? I mean, how do you respond to an attack where, while you may publicly blame you know, one country, there's not a whole lot of proof of that. And for this, we can, we can actually look a little bit in the past because Fakhrizadeh's uh, assassination is actually believed to be the fifth assassination of a scientist that's connected to the Iranian nuclear program. If you go back in history, uh, there are four others starting back in 2010, a man by the name of Majid Shariari. Uh, he was killed in almost actually 10 years to the day, or I think it was a day or two later, so almost 10 years ago. Then you had a guy in 2011, 2012, two in 2012, and then Fakhrizadeh. Uh, so these assassinations, and you combine that with, say, the assassination of uh, Qasem Soleimani, uh, you had a recent slaying of Al-Qaeda's number two guy. We actually haven't talked about that on the podcast, but there's a man by the name of Abu Muhammad al-Masri who was considered Al-Qaeda's kind of number two in command. He was killed in Tehran. There, This is kind of a, a series now of pretty major counterintelligence failures on Iran's part. And while, as I've mentioned a couple of times, the the assassination itself was kind of sloppy in a weird sense, but it also had to be fairly decently planned uh, to know where he was going to be at a certain time to ambush him. I mean, a- ambushes don't happen accidentally. They happen with, with planning. Uh, even if it ends up being kind of a sloppy one, you still have to know where he's going to be, when he's going to be there, uh, have a plan to handle security, all these types of things. So how could this have happened, right? I mean, the assassins had to have knowledge of his security detail, had to have knowledge of his route and his timing. So what are the ex- explanations for this? Um, and the way I see it, there are probably three. First is that Iran's counterintelligence is just super weak, right? Very unstructured. They can't even take basic precautions to keep their intelligence secure, protect their officials, that's a possibility. I, I think that's probably unlikely uh, because they have operated secret programs for a long time. So being able to secure intelligence is something they, maybe they're not on the level of like in Israel or the United States, but they're, they're not amateurish. Second is the idea of the technology being very poor. So, you know, people or foreign powers or just even the average person might be able to hack databases and therefore track important people. That one makes some more sense. Uh, Iran's technological 
level is not at the level of many on the Western countries or even some of their other rivals in the Middle East like Saudi Arabia. That's a possibility. However, I would lean more on the third, and that's the idea that the country has what you would consider moles or people who are defecting, defectors, individuals inside their Iran's intel organizations that are passing information directly to opponents of the regime. That, to me, makes the most sense given what we know about internal strife in Iran. Again, speculation. Actually, all three of those, they're not mutually exclusive. It could be multiple ones. But the fact that we've had you know, up to five assassinations of nuclear scientists, there have been actually other attacks on the Iranian nuclear program as well, strikes against locations, uh, the death of Soleimani, uh, Al-Masri, the Al-Qaeda guy in Tehran. Like This is not just one-off situations. This is a kind of a, a growing collective counterintelligence failure that implies something deeper is going on. So what happens now? Like where, where does Iran go from here? I mean, you had the, the leaders in government speaking out very boldly about this and how there will be retribution and revenge, avenging the blood of a dead martyr, uh, those types of things. And as I said, there were protests by people as well outside of government buildings. So, so doing nothing here is not an option. Uh, Iran will have to find some sort of response. Uh, and most likely, you'll actually see two responses. You'll see something domestically. My guess would be their ministry of uh, counterintelligence or whatever they call it uh, would be arresting a couple people. My guess is you'll we'll see ser- several arrests out of this. People that they at least claim leaked information. Um, or had some sort of links to the killing. I mean, for something like this where you had to have knowledge of the security detail and of his route and everything, there had to be somebody on the inside. So they're going to find somebody to blame for it. Now, whether they get the right person or not, we, we don't know. But domestically, what we'll see is there will be a few arrests, almost certainly people who will be kind of paraded on local or state TV, uh, force confessions out of them, which is not unknown for them. But they'll probably make them claim that they worked for Mossad or some sort of other Israeli intelligence, and then they'll publicly execute them. Internationally, though, there are a couple of different ways they could go. Uh, obviously, one way is they could just declare war, outright war. The way it's looking, that would probably be against Israel, you know, start firing at Israel, uh, maybe directly from their country, maybe using some sort of Iranian proxies like Hezbollah in Lebanon or, or someone else. Uh, they could go through Hamas but they could just go outright war, right? Some sort of serious Iranian attack, which would be you know, coordinated raids on embassies, uh, powerful rockets, attacks on forces in the region, maybe even U.S. forces. Uh, they could even launch missiles at some of their other enemies, like the UAE or Saudi Arabia. Bare minimum puts them on the brink of all-out war, and it likely will, would actually lead to war. That is, that is option one. Option two, I think, is probably the more likely, which would be some sort of more moderated or restrained response, uh, because I don't think they want war, right? They don't want war with Israel. They don't want war with the United States, for sure. Uh, they probably don't want war with Saudi Arabia. Uh, and in fact, the rumors that those countries have teamed up, especially the Israel-Saudi Arabia reported meeting, I don't think they want any part of that. Um, I think that would be unlikely, and frankly, it would be unwise. And we're already seeing some indications that they will not act rashly and move like that. You know, President Rouhani has has said things like, we'll respond to this in a timely and appropriate manner too, which 
speaks to more of a, a measured response. The more measured responses here are probably something more along the, along the lines of a very minimal handful of small missiles or mortar shells fired by Hezbollah or they'll funnel them to Hamas or something small small enough they know Israel's not going to be majorly damaged by it, but enough that they can publicly claim they retaliated and save face. I think that's probably the more likely avenue they would go. Uh, but you, know, you never know. Um, and this is something to keep a close watch on going forward uh, because the potential risk if they do move to that scenario one of you know some sort of major retaliation for towards outright war, that would have implications that reverberate and ripple well beyond their you know their country. And in fact, it probably would end up involving the United States to some point uh, because of our relationships with their other enemies in the Middle East, which would be Saudi Arabia and Israel, who the United States has close relationships with both. Uh, so we're looking at this probably and hoping they go scenario number two, which is the more measured response, allows them to claim retaliation while really saving face on the domestic front and international front, but having it be fairly minimal. And this is essentially what we saw them do with uh, when Soleimani was killed too. They, they did have an attack, but it, it was pretty minimal overall. Uh, it was much more measured. So I, I think we're likely to see that. But uh, this is something to keep a close watch on going forward because it's um, a fairly high profile assassination of a, a scientist who has had his fingers in the pots of a lot of nuclear programs in Iran for, for decades, really. And regardless of who actually was behind this, and we honestly, we, we may never find out for sure. Uh, these types of things aren't always publicized in the end. And of course, Iran has a lot of enemies around the world too. So there are a lot of different uh, possibilities at play here. And so we may never actually find out the truth. We may only deal in speculation, but it is a, a situation to keep a close eye on because anytime something like this happens where you're dealing with a country like Iran where stability is not one of their strong suits, uh, it's it's worth being wary of. Uh, and I know a lot of countries in the Middle East are paying very close attention to this. The United States, at least at the international you know, intelligence level, is as well, alongside many of their the U.S.'s allies like the UK, France, Germany, uh, Israel, obviously in the Middle East itself, but other countries too. Uh, and so I think this is a, this is a really, really interesting scenario that is developing here uh, that we'll have to kind of wait and see what the end result is. And honestly, Iran might not even retaliate or do any sort of public response or international response until after the new inauguration in the United States when uh, presumably Biden will will take the oath of inauguration and become president in January. The thought is Iran may actually wait to see how things go because they, they, there's a good chance they're going to see Biden as at least more friendly to them. Uh, so they may wait and see Biden's first moves when he gets into office before any sort of public response, at least on the international front. But, but domestically, I think we're going to look to see potential arrests coming very soon of people in their intelligence community that they claim were moles or uh, defectors or you know, somehow passing intel to, to people outside of the Iranian intelligence community. Uh, but with that, I'm going to go ahead and call it an episode. And this has been, I think, a little bit of a longer one. I have to check the, the actual length, but it feels longer. 
Uh, but I think it's a really interesting story and one that may be developing over the next weeks to months that is worth paying attention to, uh, even if the media doesn't cover it in a whole lot of detail. Uh, but the articles are out there if you want to look up this and just investigate more about it. Just Google Iranian assassination and you can read more about this. It's an interesting story with a lot of developments that have yet to be unveiled. Uh, but with that, I'm going to go ahead and close out the episode. Uh, but before I do, let's uh, just drop my information is how to get in touch with me. Uh, if you want to follow me online, you can find me on Twitter at Justin R underscore Kinney. Find me, hit that follow button. Uh, you can contact me. I know a few of you have reached out to me through Twitter. And I really appreciate that. I always love talking to people, whether it's about this topic or something else, or you have an idea for a future topic, you can do that. Uh, also, reach out to me on Facebook. I have a Facebook page that's J. Robert Kinney. You find me, hit that follow button, subscribe, uh, hit the like button, I guess it is, on, on Facebook. And that's the name I write fiction novels under, J. Robert Kinney. On that note, I actually have a brand new novel that will be coming out in just the next couple of weeks before Christmas. So if you're at all interested in that, uh, follow my Facebook page. I would really appreciate that. I have two novels out currently, but this is the third one. It's actually a sequel to my second one. Uh, so that's really exciting. I'm actually really excited about that too. Uh, so find, find me on Facebook, hit that like button. I'd really appreciate it. If you're interested in getting in contact with me to advertise in the podcast or support the podcast in any way, uh, I do have a Patreon account you can find online, or you can just reach out to me directly in one of the other two ways, and I'd be happy to talk with you more about those possibilities. All right, so let's go ahead and close things down. Thanks so much for tuning in. This is Nutshell Politics. My name is Dr. Justin Kinney, and I am out in a three, two, one.